Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) So on to episode six. Uh, Yes, The General, written by Joshua Joshua Adam. Joshua Adam, uh, except that's his pen name. I believe it's Lewis Griefer's children. I think they're... Oh, Joshua and Adam. And Adam, Ah, they're his son's names. Well, apparently uh, Lewis Griefer's children were at the, at the age where they were doing their O-levels and A-levels, mm. and they were complaining to their father that they were fed up of this system of learning by rote and then being tested. Yeah. You know, and um, he, he kind of channeled that frustration into this episode. Mm. And then with Magoo's sensibilities about predicting the future or predicting how technology will dilute education... Yeah. You have this episode. You have speed learn. Yeah. You know, what's the natural possible progression for education? Mm. Education's a very different beast now. It's not exactly speed learn, but there are elements of speed learn within today's society. In the classic predictive nature of the prisoner, um, I thought that a lot of the, particularly well, the last two years with uh, with Zoom classes and stuff mm. like that, it seemed to resonate quite a lot with that during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the um, what the internet's done in terms of education, you often hear people saying, well, you, you don't need to need to, to learn these things anymore because it's there at your fingertips. Yeah. Um, when was the Battle of Bosworth Field? Yeah. Um, hang on. <laughs> it was 1485. There you go. I always thought there was something a little bit dangerous about that mm. attitude because, uh, well, you don't need to learn it. Over the years, I've got a little bit more sympathy for sort of by rote because it does drill information into you. It's, it's the part... The, the act of having to learn it, of having to leave yeah, your but that's seat. that's not education, that's memory recall. Oh, yes. And that's the, that's the difference. And, and shows like Mastermind or Eggheads, mm. you know, where these shows where you have these, they class them as genius-level contestants, and no disrespect to them, I'm sure some of them are. But there's a difference between being knowledgeable and being able to recall information. That's not education, that's remembering a fact and regurgitating it, which is a very different thing. There's no synthesis of that information. So I teach you um, how to to bake a cake. You know, you will pick up skills in that process, if you do it physically, that you will be able to apply when you're making something else. So you're synthesising that skill set. I'm going to use this tool to do this. I'm going to, oh, you know, I'm going to use a, a, a ricer to make mashed potato because I've seen what that does. So yeah, they're brilliant, by the way. They are for great for making mashed potatoes. Best ever. But you're synthesising a skill that you've used for one thing and applying it to another. That's knowledge. That's a p- application of knowledge and giving it context. You see these people on, on quiz shows and they say, you know, in which year was was the FA Cup final for so and so? And they go, oh, you know, 1963. And you're like, that's not been knowledgeable. That's memory recall. And that's what I think part of this episode is looking at. You're just teaching facts that can be regurgitated and examined. Mm. You know, and that exam paper will be, you know, who were, you know, the allies of so and so. And they'll regurgitate it. In terms of education and being knowledgeable and intelligence, that's not reflective. Yeah. What does he call them in the episode? Um, 
knowledgeable cabbages. <laughs> I know, he, he's a big fan of the cabbage metaphor, isn't he? Yeah. Pops up again. But he's right. Yes, yes. And this is, I think this is part of the problem with, with governments as well, or especially the British government, any, any party that gets in. Uh, it's our system which lets our students, our children down, because, you know, if, if you were having a heart surgery, would you want somebody who'd never done heart surgery before and went to Eton or Harrow <laughs> uh, or Cambridge or Oxford uh, with no medical experience, or would you want a qualified heart surgeon doing that work on you? The answer's obvious. Yes. But in the highest echelons of our government, we're quite happy to put the people who make the decisions in place who have no experience of the subject. Mm. Education secretaries, health secretaries. They're basically just going up the career ladder and being put into these positions. Yet they should be people who are specialists in that area. You want your education secretary to at least have been a teacher. You know, someone who's actually been in the classroom. But they're not. And I think that's part of, 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 not so much represented in the general, but it's certainly an issue that stems from the general mm. in how education is approached. And I think there's these trends, you know, say, so, right, OK, so in the 80s, we had the GCSE syllabus came in and that revamped it. You know, they put in the coursework elements and then, but there was still an exam. And then you had things like the BTECs, the um, technical certificates, which allowed more practical assessment it, it, it allowed for students who weren't academic to achieve practically, to lead on to things like apprenticeships or to real-world skills. So it's only been in the last 30 years that we've revamped our education system. And then a couple of years ago, the government wanted to change it again, back to the old way. Mm. I think it was Michael Gove wanted to go back to the old, old, old an A-level system. It was a reversion rather than a progression. And, and this system, this learning by rote system, it's an archaic system. But McGowan's take on it, well, with, with Griefer, is that it's the application of the technology to make it easier. So what happens? Your teachers are taken out of the classroom. SpeedLearn becomes an automated system. Yes, even the professor in his scripted speech says yeah. uh, this will make him obsolete as the dodo. And have you ever done a, an online test for anything? So uh, Microsoft do them for their tests. There's no human element in the testing. There's no formative or summative assessment. Only really something a human being can do. Mm. A computer can't do that. A computer will ask you a question, but if you respond, it's not intelligent enough to take that answer and apply it. Particularly if the question is why. It may even even explode. But it'll give you multiple choice answers. Yes. Well, um, I've been having a little spot of bother with Facebook recently and... uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be a human being working for them. And even when you mm. say, um, how, what, how can we help you with this? And you put your question in. And it's like, no, no, how can we help you with these six questions? Yeah. No, I have a seventh. That's <laughs> yeah. simply no good to us. Yeah, this is why a lot of people get frustrated and they want to speak to a human being mm. because artificial intelligence and, and, and these systems are not advanced enough to take that load away. And this is a theme, I think, if you were remaking The Prisoner today... This is a theme I think that will be explored, yeah. is the dehumanisation of the processes, dehumanisation of education. But look at, go to any supermarket and you have the self-service checkouts. Yes. A lot of people just go through and, and scan, scan, pay and off they go. But that's replacing a human being. 
progressing a human being's job. So in all these years of, of labor-saving devices that we've created, like the self-service checkouts and automated systems to help people, supposedly help people, we still seem to be working the same amount of time or harder than ever. Yeah, I've, I've never understood this. I think every single invention that seems to be invented over the last 50 years has been to make something that already exists either smaller, faster, or just kind of, we don't need to, or just removing an obstacle that we mm. no longer need. All these are labour-saving devices, mm. and yet we've never been more stressed, more... No, exactly, you know, exactly. <laughs> ...less time on our hands. Yeah, you know, if we do this, we can go down to a four-day week or a three-day week. It's not happened. No. You know, and, and I think with the COVID pandemic, it, it proved one thing, is that people will still work and achieve their their workload in their own time. Mm. You know, more and more so. Yeah, and, and I think that being in education, we had to face a whole new set of challenges. My work with students is predominantly practical. You know, I'm in a studio with them. We're operating cameras, we're operating, you know, sound recording and doing multi-camera and stuff like that. You can't do that over Zoom. Mm. You know, so you can only teach them the theory. You can teach them certain elements of the process and show them videos and you know I, I you know I had to give them some pre-recorded footage for an assessment that they had to edit but usually they would record it themselves and learn the part of the process so yes automation and and uh, computer and the internet can replace certain elements but they can't replace having a human being in the classroom yes and I can't see that happening anytime soon until AI becomes you know, a, an actual proper thinking machine that's able to differentiate between types of questioning. You know, if you have a student in the class and they're upset and, you you know, you're asking questions and you can see on their faces something's wrong. How can a computer do that? It can't. But a human being can say, you know, is everything OK? Do you need any help? You know, are you struggling with the work? You know, all that kind of stuff, which is what we do as, as teachers. You know, we're trained to to differentiate. We're trained to support to make sure that everybody is in a comfortable environment to learn. A computer will never be able to do that, in my opinion. No. In my, in my I'm not job. trying to defend my job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for speed learn as well, even though they've retained this information, it's just like I say, it's just memory recall. Mm. And they'll pass an exam and they'll tick a box. Yes. And, and that's it. The stats are great for another year. And it leads into that culture of stats as well, which has dominated education. Yes. But yeah, students have become numbers and not just as their identity as a student, but also in how they're represented as, as numbers on a database for attendance, for retention. They become numbers in attainment and successful completion. You know, how many people we keep, how many people of those people we keep have succeeded, how many people who were enrolled... Um, actually succeeded in the end. So you've got a series, a string of numbers that dictate education. And, of course, with cost. Uh, and, you know, people have tried to adapt this before. And, you know, we have these academies were brought up. But they're businesses. You know, education has now become a business. Yes. And universities particularly, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, you're struggling for numbers. But, uh, but I think this is the core of what's happening in the general is this automation of the educational process is is done with good intentions, but or you know the professor I, I don't believe to be the villain of the piece. I think he actually was working with good intentions in yeah. mind, but it's subverted by another force, the village. Yeah, the village subverts it. Who wants to who want to use it for nefarious ends? Mm. 
And w- this is this is an odd point. They want to use it for nefarious ends as an experiment. Mm. This is it, it goes back to what you were saying about free for all and the exports and the exports. Mm. Like, what the hell? <laughs> what are they doing? But this kind of it's the the idea of the villagers as guinea pigs. Mm. They're trying out stuff first on them, uh, but then they're going to put it out into the into the wider world, sell it to the wider that's world. Is it a package or is this? That's the Mark Stein element coming into play, isn't it? Mm. You've got the the spy trope side. It, it works well with that and I think quite a few people have speculated that the, you know the village is a test centre and it's going to be exported and, and used in the world in general yeah. but on the allegorical side it stands alone and it works okay on its own because you get the message yeah no, I mean it's I mean number six I think takes this position as well but it's the, you know, the like going back to memory by rote mm. um, but it's what they're putting in and number six brings up the uh, the subject, doesn't he? About it's not just if you've got this memory system which just puts information into your brain word for word for word. Number six's concern, obviously, is what information. And you think, well, if they're teaching about Napoleonic history, uh, at the same time they could just be teaching you that this is right, this is wrong. Mm. Uh, your your beloved glorious leader uh, <laughs> tells you to do this, and mm. well, you, uh, and then. The next day in the cafe, we should be doing this, shouldn't we? Yes, we should. There's also quite a nice link between the type of information that the villagers are learning, mm. which is military history, and the general. So the general being, as we find out, the computer at the end of the episode, that's creating these, these lessons or this syllabus. And it's, well, the information we see on screen is military history. No other subjects. It's just history. For some well, reason. that would have been, I suppose, at the time... St- Standard. I think most history taught in schools was largely military history, and well, mm-hmm. our many glorious victories. But that's just one subject. Yeah, but then the, in, in the application, I think mm. it's just it's one hundred percent sinister, mm. which is of course why Colin Gordon's all over it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even speak in sort of a no, no. This this will start out well, but I'm sure we'll be able to twist it. So no, 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 no. Yeah, and and you can tell this is supposed to take place before A, B, and C. I completely agree. I think uh, there are two very different performances in the general, and A, B, and C. And in this one, he is—he's a, a very cocksure, threatening. Mm. Uh, there's a bit when he goes into his room. When he just walks in, he has the effrontery to just walk straight into Number Six's <laughs> house, doesn't he? Yeah. When he's looking for the uh, transistor, knock maybe. Yeah. I know the automatic doors, but there's that scene where he kind of when they're sort of trying to out information each other or repeating the same information, where he's just staring at him with his look of victory and all the way through he's quite you know I'm, I'm on this the, in ABC he's broken from the beginning he's terrified mm. so he's clearly sort of he knows I've got one more crack at this yeah, 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 after yeah. that hoo-ha with the whole computer yeah, yeah. thing when I let him put uh, a question to the computer what an idiot what, one thing I do like about this episode is the use of classroom terminology within the dialogue. I knew you'd love this episode. <laughs> I'm going to sit back largely and let you go on this one. But you probably noticed yourself, there's, there's quite a lot of, uh, of classroom terminology. That, you know, truant. Oh, it's be, yeah, it's been naughty. Yeah, homework. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, there's, um, Griefer is, is, is quite clever in his wordplay, I think. In introducing this, and of course, it comes back in Once Upon a Time as well. There's elements of this in Once Upon a Time, but he's quite clever to sew those associations with the classroom into the the dialogue. Ah, uh, very, very clever. Yeah. So, what what do we actually know about Louis Griefer? Uh, well, he was predominantly a TV writer. Uh, one interesting fact is he wrote for uh, Emergency Ward Ten, ah. which is where Peter Howell 
who plays the professor, is probably best known. I I keep I, I was confusing him with I think Patrick McGee. Right, Not Patrick yes. Muckney, but Patrick Muggie. Muggie. Who's yeah, got a similar... Clockwork Orange. Yeah. yeah. But it's, maybe it's the exact, ex, they share exactly the same hair. <laughs> yeah. Or lack of it. <laughs> and for years I thought that was him. Yeah. I mean, uh, Grief, like I say, he'd, he'd written episodes of um, Emergency Ward 10, uh, Ghost Squad, various other things since the 1950s. So he, by the time he, he wrote for the prisoner, he'd already had a, a decade-long career. In, in television. And after The Prisoner, he went on to write um, for shows like Fraud Squad, uh, New Scotland Yard, Special Branch, of course, yes. with uh, Darren Nesbitt. Doctor Who? Yes. Now, he wrote one of the most celebrated um, episodes of Doctor Who, of Tom Baker's here, which is Pyramids of Mars. Do you know what? I mean, I'm no Whovian, but yeah. I've heard of that one. You'd enjoy that. Yeah. It has uh, Michael Sherd in it. I would very much. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah, it's it's a really good episode. Um, I haven't seen it for I years. And Tom Baker, of it's course, one of Tom Baker's bit, yeah. most famous episodes. Ah, well, I know he was Sutek big... the Destroyer. <laughs> yes, an alien masquerading as a as an Egyptian god. But um, yeah, he, he had a pretty constant career really in uh, in television writing. Yeah, nothing really. You know, huge, but um, but yeah, a good, a good solid writer. Yeah. Well, I think he he was um, he had an association with George Markstein before the prisoner. I think George Markstein's job, I think, was to assemble a lot of these writers, to, mm. and uh, so he would have gone back to his his pool of familiars. Yeah, and um, a, a, because of his, um, he was a Jewish writer as well. Yes, and I believe he went over to Tel Aviv in Israel to teach. After, after his career? After, well, his, his, his final IMDb listing is for Doctor Who in 1975, and he died in 2003. Well, that's a bit of a, yeah. So he, his professional writing seems to have stalled, or, you know, maybe he, he gave it up around 1975. I, I can't do anything better than that Tom Baker a, episode. Yeah, what a high to go out on, though, as, <laughs> as a TV writer, absolutely. I know when to quit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the episode was directed by Peter Graham Scott, who was quite a well-known name. He was a director, producer, a writer. Uh, he'd even been uh, an actor early in his career, which is quite common for quite a lot of people in television. Uh, started off as actors and then had maybe done things like the BBC director's course or producer's courses and changed their career path yeah. to work behind the camera. A lovely quote from Patrick McGowan about hiring Scott, because he's quick and he was cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd just come off a film with Charlie Drake, who some of our younger listeners may have to Google. He's going to vanish yeah. from the, the, the conversation. I can't remember what it was called, but it was an unbelievably close cousin to the, the producers. The was plot it was Mr. Almost... 10%? Yes. Where the guy, he writes a, um, a play mm. and he sells it, but they put it on as a, a farce and yeah. he wants it to be a drama. So he ends up trying to sabotage his own play. Mm. Which, uh, <laughs> or, and there's something, the 10% thing is to do with the profits. He ends yes, up making... Average um, agent or... Yeah, and he, he's... Manager's he, salary, isn't he, it? Does he end up owing 110% of the... Pro it's some sort of, kind of... You're reading the synopsis, you're thinking, hang on. <laughs> Mel Brooks kind of, hang on, I'll just... Yes, he was. He had a reputation for being very, uh, you know, as you say, quick and cheap. He he was brought in at the last minute. I think they had another director lined up, and this was something that was going on quite a bit at the time. I think at this stage, when you you they were making the sort of secondary episodes mm. that weren't part of McGowan's original vision, 
Um, and there seemed, at the, from what I read, to be quite a lot of directors coming and going and dissatisfaction from McGowan's mm -hmm. uh, point of view. So I think there may be a bit of a fallout here. And then Peter Graham Scott, who directed McGowan quite a lot in Danger Man. Yes, he? yeah. He, he did like, right, seven episodes of Danger Man. It's Friday. I see. <laughs> what are you doing Monday? No, you're not. You're directing this. <laughs> see you at Borenwood. But he'd, he'd already had quite a successful career as a director of British television. He'd, he'd also done four episodes of The Avengers prior to yes, that's, I, The Prisoner. Uh, the, the Avengers seem to have only quite a, f a handful of directors, mm. because every time you see one, you go, ah, it's him again. I think, yeah, and I think it's good for rotation, though. Yeah. It's also yeah. you know the people as well, you know how they work. Of course, the big thing at the time was budget, mm. budget and timescale. Yes. You know, here, this is X amount of money, you've got X amount of time to do it. Yes. And a lot of rookie directors always fell foul of that because they all fancy themselves as Hitchcock or whatever. Yes. And so oh, I'm not happy about that take. Where the season directors are saying, okay, go and rehearse, learn your lines, <laughs> know your marks, we'll do one rehearsal and then we're going to go for a take. You know, and if it's not done by the third take, we're moving on. Yes. Because they didn't have the luxury of time. There was, yeah, there's a, an, another director later on in the schedule who, who was doing a bit of that, the whole sort of, hang on, let me just get this right, the, mm. walking around Port Merriam with his kind of the hands as the screen, yeah. and he lasted about four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like McGoon said, he was quick and, and he, he was, was cheap. cheap. But McGoon, I think McGoon, for all, his, for all the extraordinary nature of the, McGoon's vision, mm. he, at the same time, he, he knew exactly how this worked. Yes. We've got a five-day schedule. There won't be day six. Mm. We're getting this done in five, and I've only got this amount of money. That's it. He, he was he was a he was a pro. But this is why they've got so much uh, stock footage that they've already captured that they can sequence in. Mm. You know, with, if, we're, if we're a little bit under, we'll put in a, an aerial shot that we've already got, or we'll you know we'll put in this shot of him walking on the beach or whatever. Did you spot cars in the, in the, in the aerial shot? There's the the opening shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hang on, <laughs> the catering guy. Well, but who's got to park somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose he's pretty good. <laughs> this clocking in. Morning. Like, oh, can you valet this? <laughs> but, I mean, there's not much you can do. I mean, as you know, you know, the, uh, Port Marion was a, was still operational as a, as a tourist destination. Even while they were filming? Yeah, well, you can see in some of the, you know, have you seen the, the cine footage of the of Arrival being filmed? Yes. Oh, on uh, you, can, you, can, you can. There's footage of this in Chris Rodley's documentary. Yes, uh, in, in my, my mind. mind. It's. I think it's on YouTube as well and uh, various documentaries. It was extraordinary because these are shots that I remember vividly from the series. Mm. And what do you see? There's, there's a crowd of people yeah. behind. Well, this, when in Arrival, where Number Six gets into the the mini moke, yeah, and she's saying to him, you know, we're very, con you know, we're very cosmopolitan, and and driving around the little water. Yeah. Pond thing with the camera. You know, the cameraman sat on, you know, completely health and safety out the window, sat on the front of the miniboat, just pointing the camera at them. But that, that with was, loads of tourists. Yeah, that sat was, around that them. was the amazing thing. There's about sort of uh, about three deep mm. behind the camera. These yeah. tourists. And how how did McGowan act <laughs> when, like that? You know, he's just walking around, and, and that must be so irritating. Surely somebody would have just gone snap for the cameras. Oh God. Probably stop yeah. it, but but of course that's why you have you know you have ads and people who are on set who will say, you know, please respect yes. <laughs> the actors and and of course they did, or if they didn't, it would have been cut and <laughs> get rid no. of. No, Patrick McGowan is going to shout at you. <laughs> going to get Rover on you. <laughs> <laughs> is Ro actually Rover doesn't show up in this one, does he? No, 
uh, at the beginning. There's even an orange. Not alert. even on the beach. Oh no, the, no, it's the um, the villages. The villages do yeah. do the trick for them. Yeah, they, Rover's they, a week off. That scene actually on the beach where the villagers are chasing the mm. professor reminded. There was a bit of a sort of prefiguring of of Dance of the Dead. Yeah, you know, with the villagers as the, you know when they start running after number mm. six, and you think the villagers. What are they? Well, the guards aren't doing this. Is the villagers themselves, which is sort of an interesting bit of complicity. You see, there's there's a few ways to look at that. I've always looked at that as mob mentality. Yeah, and you know you see these things in the press. Uh, one one case. Um, that I talk about in, a, in an ethics class is the case of um, Christopher Jeffries, who was an academic. Of course, yeah. He was in Bath when uh, Joanna Yates died, about, about 10 years ago now. Yes. And the, the media had basically brought him out and saying, this is suspect number one. Yes. And the, the, the comments sections in the various online platforms or you know were vile absolutely yeah. vile that was terrifying because it for for a good couple of weeks while he was a suspect mm. the law basically was replaced by well you've only got to look at him yes yeah he <laughs> looks a bit look at shifty, his odd hair yeah look yes. at his odd hair yeah they made a film about it didn't they itv um with jason watkins yes playing yes christopher jeffries and, and it's those, those comments just showed the worst the worst side of of human beings I thought it's mob mentality it's, it's Frankenstein isn't it it's the pitchforks and it's, the it is. torches it's, yeah well or mobile phones and Twitter accounts yeah but uh, aren't we clever yeah <laughs> it's, yeah keyboard warriors it's, it's all very well attacking somebody from the safety behind a screen yes but it still has real world ramifications and those villages to me represent mob mentality and it happens in Dance of the Dead they're so brainwashed yeah by the media of the village that they React. Who's the guy? You know, when uh, one of two of them actually turn up in a mini moke to pick up number six. Mm. Is he the guy? Oh, he calls him prefects, aren't he? Prefects. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the classroom terminology again. Yeah, but isn't he? Isn't he the guy who um, goes through that uh, unmutual thing and change of mind, or has he just got the same beard? Yeah, Michael Miller. Ah, is yes. the, the hirsute <laughs> yeah. uh, buggy he, rider. He seems to have uh, a beard that covers his entire face, yeah. which I thought was very impressive. Uh, but you're right, he turns up in a change of mind. As the, believe me, believe me. But he also turns up in Fallout. Oh, does he? Yeah. That's impressive. I know. That's all right, you're getting three out of, uh, <laughs> getting three episodes. I know, he's, he's <laughs> running, running a close second to Angelo Muscat. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Ian Fleming's in this as well, which is quite nice. The, and Ian Fleming. Oh, uh, not the... Not, uh, not the famous writer of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes. And, 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 and that spy other, series. And other novels. <laughs> yeah. Who was actually, I think, uh, long dead when this episode was filmed anyway, so I think I they think just had so, him yeah. falling out of cupboards. But that's, it's quite nice that they've got somebody with the same name. Who didn't even bother. <laughs> Maybe Ian R. Fleming? No, no, no. Ian Fleming's yeah. my name. Well, the thing, I think, with Equity, the Actors' Union, you, obviously you can't have the same name as an actor who's registered with Equity. And Peter Howell, who the actor in uh, who plays the professor, there is a Peter Howell who is a composer who's worked on Doctor Who. <laughs> so <laughs> you can have the same name. You can have the same name as a composer as well. We have the only American. Yes. In the in this episode. Yeah, I think he got the part by winning a Ringo Starr lookalike competition. <laughs> and so while you're here, you've won £10 worth of Woolworths vouchers and an opportunity to play a part in this hit television show, The Prisoner. Yeah. Does this tell us anything? Or is it just a kind of an unusual bit of... Uh... Well, I think it's quite nice in that it, it opens up the village 
again internationally, internationally yeah. yeah we hear another accent outside of british or french or or you know the made up language that's used within yeah. the village as well and of course this is al mancini but he, i mean he again he was um, he was quite well known in uh, itc circles yeah he's a very familiar face or voice or, or combination yeah. of both he'd been in everything and post prisoner he he'd been in, he'd probably expect protectors jason k <laughs> uh, department s ufo he was in all of them did you know he was in the dirty dozen that rings a bell a very loud bell um, he wasn't one of the dozen, was he? He was, yes. He but, was Tassos Bravos. Weren't they, weren't they making that at the same time? There were sets that they used from A, B and C that I think were holdovers from the Dirty Dozen, so maybe he was just kind of hanging around. We need an American for this one. We'll just nip across the street into the Dirty Dozen. Well, it was dozen. shot in Britain, <laughs> like most things are. The Dirty Dozen? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, but I think all the countryside stuff. Yeah, the airbase was, was at Hendon. They shot in uh, mostly, yeah, it was mostly Hertfordshire. And, of course, it was shot at, where do you think? Bottom Wood. Bottom Wood, yeah. But the MGM British Studios. The, um, the bit in A, B and C, uh, when he's kidnapped in the car, mm. and then he goes to meet him. I'm sure those are old sets from the Dirty Dozen that they were trying to reuse. Yeah, there's, yeah standing sets at Bottom Wood, aren't they, that yeah. easily put up there. But apart from Dirty Dozen, that was really only his oh, poor lad. big role, really. So I guess he is, well, apart from Patrick Magoon, I think he is the first <laughs> American to appear in a prison. There you are. Yeah. Bit of triv. The other, of course, famous actor um, who went on to, to high things, John Castle, prior to uh, The Prisoner. He'd been on Blow Up. Yes, he had. He's a very sort of... Um, he's a very 60s actor. I mean, he was a good-looking lad, but there was something about the way he played parts that made him immediately villainous. Yeah, which he did in RoboCop 3. I, I was going to say, because <laughs> that was on the other, I thought, well, I'm gonna, do you know what, I feel like torturing myself. I'm going to watch <laughs> RoboCop 3. I've, I'd seen bits of it, and, and every time I, I watched it, I thought, this is so bad, I can't, yeah. so I turned it off. So I'd seen 80 different five-minute slabs. Yeah, it was Paul uh, McDaggett, wasn't he? <laughs> who I suspect he was at the bottom of a, a long list of British actors being what? slowly crossed off. Well, he, he was in The Lion in Winter. Yes, he was. As in one of the tools, which Jeffrey he played. Yes, with uh, Jane Merrow, of course. If you look at his career, it's mostly British television. You know, he had quite a, a long career, but his final performance was in uh, an adaptation of uh, M.R. James's *The Tractate Midoth*. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Was that one of the Christmas Eve? One of the Christmas horrors. Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, Mark Gatiss uh, directed. He's also one of the youngest actors. In, in the dances. prison, yeah, yeah, he would have been about twenty-six when they were filming this. Yes, as number twelve, as interestingly, number 12, yeah. Given that the schizoid man was also the, the previous episode, so he was. <laughs> I think there was probably maybe a bit more to it than simply um, we've got this rummaging into a box of, of prisoner badges and giving yeah, him this one. Yeah. I think number twelve. Little... Well, we know that Curtis dies, so that void is is left open, isn't it? Yes. He says, doesn't he, how long have you been with us? And he's not been with us a long time, has he? It's interesting, though, because he is genuinely trying to help Number 6 escape. Mm, from and, within. Yeah. There are frustrations about this episode that I have, and one of them is that he's, he's not fleshed out enough no. as a character. Because it's like, why are you trying to help this man escape? Because all, all the way through, you think, well, obviously it's a double bluff. And yes. I can't believe Number 6 is actually starting to fall for this. Yeah. Surely, by now, you must know you can't trust anyone. Yeah. But he is. Why? It's hard for him to put 100% trust into any villager, especially someone like number 12 who's on the, the side of the village. Yeah. 
you know, what has he got to gain from this? Yeah, because as having been let down as a viewer mm. uh, by all this kind of uh, shenanigans, you're waiting for the big reveal. Yeah, I suppose maybe by this point that reveal wouldn't have even been a reveal because you're assuming yeah. he's going to let him down, or it's all a big trap. Yeah, there's no trap. This you time. wait for that twist. Yeah, and it, and uh, it doesn't come, which in a way is even more damaging from number six because mm. from this point on. Maybe there is. See, he could have been the general. I quite like that because that subverts expectation. If you're switched on with the prisoner and you're watching that for the first time, you think, who could the general be? Because you're not thinking that it's a computer. Mm. You're thinking it's a, a person. And, of course, the, the, your, your brain automatically goes general, like doctor. A lot of people would automatically assume it's a male character. Mm. And they're subverting that expectation by saying, ah, general could be a woman. And yes. I'm, I'm guessing some audience members were like, ah. I know. You know, it's her. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course he reveals his number six reveals his uh, his sketch, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a tasty artist. Is, Look at that! Is, uh, he's, a bit of ab- he's good with abstracts, uh, as we've already learned. And if you were um, a, a, a keen audience member at this point, there was still that reference from the schizoid man at the end. Mm, yes, um, report I, to the general. I've not been able to find anything that backs up that that was a linking thing. And how, but, how would reporting to a computer aid with speed learn? Yes. Or was the computer? I think the computer was set up specifically for speed learn. Mm. So I think it's just a, a thing. But but then again, it's it's another red herring in a way. Yeah, it's tri- tripping the audience up to thinking that there's going to be this big curtain reveal, and there is oh, it's him. There's also another way you can take this: is, is certain words that we use in our vocabulary have certain meanings. You know, when broken down, be used in different ways as well. You know, the general you co- you just automatically go to a man in a green uniform with a hat mm. with maybe a baton with a moustache and that's what you automatically think the general could be you know that word general yeah it can be used in well, like any in could, any other it literally could mean anything yeah because magoon does play around he has there is a lot of wordplay mm. within the prisoner another actor i think deserves a special mention is norman mitchell who's the repairman oh <laughs> Did you? I thought, what brilliant casting, because mm. we need somebody who looks like an electrician. Here he is. Well, did you know he'd been in rep with McGowan? No, no. They were in rep together. I didn't know so that. So they no. had a the, uh, history. Um, but, yeah, he had, he had quite a very career. He'd been in Last of the Summer Wine. He'd been in Casualty. I think every British actor. has <laughs> been in Casualty. Or The Bill. Uh, or Doctors. That's becoming the new The Bill. You name it, he'd probably been in it. Do you know the scene where number six is in the... Uh, in in the professor's wife's sculpture with the, gallery, yes. the busts. Did you notice the? I did. I did. Old Liam McKern. Liam McKern, which answers the question we were asking in the uh, Chimes of Big Ben. Did yeah. he get to take any of this stuff home? No, no, <laughs> no. We still need it. Again, with the art and mm. the um, like, the Chimes of Big Ben. Did you get a sense of a bit of an arch commentary on modern art? <laughs> when she's uh, she's explaining, uh, he's uh, sitting on his head. No, he's looking at the world in a new way. And, yes. Uh, oh, really? Or I mean... <laughs> well, let's just deconstruct that a minute. That's about a matter of perspective. Mm. That's how you view the world, which is what what we're doing. It's it, the interpretations of the prisoner, mm. depending on where you you stand. You can view the prisoner in multiple ways. Yes. I wonder if that's intentional in that respect. Not just modern art, but a matter of perspective. You know, rather than just viewing something as people are telling you to view it, you're stepping outside and looking at it in a different objective or subjective way. 
Yeah. I mean, she, she's not a she's not a villain. No. In this piece, I suppose. And she doesn't have a number either, nor, no, does, the nor does the professor, which is uh, increasingly odd. But I quite like the fact that they, even though it's not really shown on screen, the end sequence where, the silent sequence where Six goes up to her and you can see he's giving her the bad news. Yeah. Which I always felt was a little bit maybe not necessary. I That really stuck out to me. I think yeah. this is the only episode that has a bit of a coda. Yeah. Um, mostly, it just ends with a gong. and you know that you know what he's saying because you can see it in her reaction, and then ends. yeah, but it's it's it felt quite American. Mm. Even the music on it, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. very very odd, uh, and I don't think it happens again. It was also quite odd or unique in this episode to see people die. They, they get electrocuted at the end, number twelve, and, and, and it's ruined the ending for you. Um, but that's almost like spy series stuff. Yeah. People get the baddies. Well, actually, oddly, the two goodies yeah. are the two uh, guys that get killed. Well, it's, it's you know, in, in, in pretty much almost all media in terms of film and television, somebody dies because yeah. it's used as a plot point. You know, was it Joseph Campbell says ap- apostasis? Yes, I think is the <laughs> that's term. right. But um, you know, it's a plot point to to move the story forward, but. In the prisoner, nobody really dies on no. screen. It's very rarely. I'm, I'm thinking of Hammer into Anvil and stuff like that. And the guy, um, the villager, getting smothered. Or does he or, even or the, die? The young woman who jumps out of the window commits. In Hammer into Anvil, yeah. Yeah. Death isn't really a, a feature of each episode. No. Um, we don't even know in episode one that the, the villager um, yeah, is, really... is dead. Six gets the, the same treatment multiple times. It's only like having a. Beach ball pressed against yeah. your face for ten seconds. Not going to kill anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it, for me. It's these little things that make this episode stand out as not being quite on board. Mm. The whole, in fact, from the moment they start going into the operations room dressed in funeral gear, mm-hmm. it kind of gets a little bit silly. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's it almost. And there are times after, after that period when. It does almost feel like like an Our Man Flint yes. film. It does get a bit sort yeah. of Bond pastiche. Well, let's let's take that apart. What you said there about the um, the Undertaker's yeah outfits, which was interesting because obviously they're there in every opening credit sequence. Mm. In fact, the the gentleman who puts the gas through the, <laughs> yeah. uh, is wearing the you know, and he's in a hearse. Yeah, you know, so so obviously that's you know, there's a symbolism of, of death there. Or the facilitators of death, is that what they're representing? Are they representing what was it? Uh, going back to Joseph Campbell again, the threshold guardians of, of of death. Is is there? You know, some people have suggested that this is a purgatory situation, something That's... that McGowan was quite keen to dismiss and say, no, no, no. In the in my mind. Um, film that Chris Rodley made, he's quite keen to say, no, no, no. There's a sequence near the end where he's saying, and you asked me about purgatory? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, he's, he's quite keen, and he does actually state, for those who are still on the fence, watch Chris Rodley's brilliant film, which is available on the network. So I think it's on Amazon Prime as well, just a little plug there for it. Yes. In that you've got the man himself basically telling you. Yeah. You know? Never mind. You drop this you know, one. It's not. Ha- this. This is. This is what I was thinking. <laughs> but he also says, you know, it's still open to interpretation, even by him. 
he was still finding his own interpretations after he'd made the prisoner. Mm. You know, so it's open to everybody. It's an unusually upfront image. Mm. Yeah, undertakers mm. to be dropping into this and then not expect anyone to sort of... Uh, Question it. Yeah. And also the shades as well. Yeah, which do look very cool. Even Colin Gordon looks pretty cool in those. Yeah. And the, the silly... Uh, the, well, it's, a, it's, an, it's an Adams Family money box, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, well, I don't know if it was a licensed thing... But famously, Magoo, that belonged to Magooin. He thought it was wonderful, and he took it to Jack Champan, and he went, I want to use this. And Champan's like, yeah, I could pick those up anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could have modified them. I, could I had one of penny those. Penny farthing on it. Yeah, but perfect. Magooin's like, I want this. Mm. But it's a lovely little novelty. It is. Apparently, they were called useless boxes, yeah. which I thought was quite nice. It's supposed to represent thing. thing, wasn't it, from yeah. Adam's family. But, um, but without any sort of direct... Copyrightable yeah. <laughs> reference, but it adds that uh, another little element of humour, uh, a bit of levity, maybe just to to the dark tones of, of the episode. It just it does seem to me to become a different episode once mm. they once they get in there. But visually, I mean, obviously with Champagne's designs for the for the sets, and everything, the 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 top hat, the glasses, the the Undertaker's garb the, the, works brilliantly. It does, and it was quite yeah. It's, it's all very sort of iconic mm. instantly. I don't think this happens again, does it? This is uh, this is a one-off for this episode. For this council, yeah. But the one thing that does come back is the Illuminati logo in the uh, top of the chair when they're all sat round. In the council building, yeah. That's right, yeah. I, I don't know where Magoon was going with that, whether it was just an artistic design, something that would stand out to say they have authority. Like we see at the beginning of every episode, it's a, it's a hearse. What does that represent yeah, it's, yeah. So essentially, he—I haven't even thought about this—but he is taken to the village in a hearse. Mm. That's, a, that's a, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things I can't believe I have never even considered that. Mm. Yeah. And, and then obviously you have to start thinking, well, what what would that possibly represent? Mm. It's no wonder people thought this was purgatory. Yes. Yeah. Like again, we talked about J.J. Abrams in the first episode yeah, yeah. with Lost. A lot of people thought. Lost was purgatory. Even when the last episode aired, people still thought they were dead all along. And, it, and no, they, they completely missed it. And uh, by that point, they'd actually sort of nailed themselves to their own theory. So yeah. I, don't, I don't care. No, no, no. I put, I put a lot of work into this. Yeah. It's purgatory. But, in, uh, but as, as McGowan says in, uh, in his Chris Rodley interview, you know, it's not, it, it's allegory. It's always allegory. You know, Mark Stein would want you to think something else. And that's fine. You you think that if you enjoy it as a spy thriller, go for it, you know. But McGowan's take on it was allegory. Yeah, it could have been a bit of a mischievous nod to Mark Steen, a sort mm. of a because I think Mark Steen really enjoyed this episode. I yeah. think it was it was up his street. Yeah, and maybe McGowan's thinking this is getting a bit too normal. This he, he would say that when in in, in doc in interviews, he's when, I, when I, I felt an episode was going in the right in the standard direction, yeah. he'd throw something in. Well, look at it this way. Look at it. You've got let's say take Lennon and McCartney. Mm. Okay, so you got Paul McCartney's writing a song. And he goes, she was just 17, never been a beauty queen. And then Lennon's like, ah, oh, Paul, that's rubbish. You know what I mean? You know, and they bounced off each other. And they, you know, McCartney's like looking at Lennon and Lennon's like, you know, no. And helped him. Yeah. And vice versa. And I wonder if that kind of relationship, not to the same creative level as McGowan and Mark Stein, but I wonder if there was that push against each other where McGowan would present something and Mark Stein would push against it I th- to I th- create this balance. I, I completely agree with that. 
And uh, you, you see what happens when, if you let somebody just go solo with no <laughs> sounding board, you know, look at Lennon and McCartney's solo stuff. Yes. Because they've got no, no opposite to kind of push them back. And it's, I think it's also the same with somebody like George Lucas as well. Yeah. When he did The Phantom Menace, is that nobody was pushing back because he was this genius he was a god by then auteur of, of science fiction he was coming up with yeah we're gonna do trade delegations and all that kind of stuff and they're going yes George amazing let's do it the kids are gonna love the politics you know and I think sometimes that sounding board of someone pushing back and of course he did he, he had the lad the lads didn't he he had champagne and he had uh, tumbling who were his you know, confidence yeah. and people he, you know, he'd work with, you know, and uh, Champagne was apparently a workaholic. Oh, yeah, he was there sort of five, four o'clock in the morning doing stuff, you know, when they would, the Magoon would turn up early, you know, <laughs> one day at six o'clock and Champagne had already been there an hour, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, it's um, Pink Floyd's another one. Mm. When you think that two, you couldn't really get two more different characters than Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Mm. And yet, by it's the locking of the antlers and the sort of yeah uh, uh, creates art creates great art yeah. which which neither of them were ever really able to replicate well, without each other. It just reminds me of that quote from the Third Man, the uh, Carol Reed film. Oh yeah, yeah. You know about well, you you probably oh, remember, you know the quote well, on, in, on the Ferris wheel. Yes, <laughs> yeah. he's going over the Borgias, Italy, the Renaissance, and all that sort of. Was mm. it ah? Um, as you said, they have. I'm trying to do my awesome, my best awesome world. <laughs> oh, yeah, they had warfare. They had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. They produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. What did he say? Uh, Switzerland. Oh, yeah. oh, in Switzerland. Yeah. yeah, in Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> Goodbye, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's quite relevant. Yes. Without that dynamic, without somebody pushing against you, that, that, and, and there was conflict. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it had Marx in in that way would have had a very a, a positive mm. uh, influence. Another another thing I noticed is the um, the television room where McGowan sneaks into, yeah, and he puts the rod into the which looks like a satellite. Yes, like a bit, like, yeah, like a like Sputnik, yeah. And there's also if you look at the. Because it's like a mobile, isn't it? Hanging mobile. Yeah. There's almost like a little solar system thing, like a, a ball within a ring, like a Saturn it's, type yeah, thing that sits on there. It did seem laughably impractical. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is this what is this? A data rod? What? What is? You know, I, I, what technology is this? <laughs> it's not a USB stick, is it? <laughs> it's sort of prefigured the USB stick, in yeah. way, isn't it? It, yeah, and again, it's that prescience. It's not the, your classic videotape or film reel that's being loaded. It's something completely futuristic. In Star Trek, they had those little blue kind of floppy disk things that they used to insert. Yeah. But this, they've got a whole broadcast sequence on a rod <laughs> that's imported into this Sputnik lookalike, isn't it? Yes, and they're quite sharp as well. But there's but- also something else going on here. The periscope. Adding another militaristic element oh, yes, to the course, episode. Yeah. You know, he's looking through a periscope, not a TV monitor, or a, you know, like in a gallery. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a it's a it's it's a device using a submarine. Well, Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. The script of which would have been in uh, McGowan's back pocket at that point. <laughs> yeah. 
But satellite television had actually been... When you talked about um, looking like a satellite, that year was the first global satellite broadcast. Oh, was it One World? The One World. With All You Need Is Love. With All You Need Is Love, yeah. Another Beatles <laughs> uh, reference. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, of course, and of course, you had Telstar a couple of years uh, earlier, which was a famous song by yeah. Joe Meek. <laughs> which I think Chaz from Chaz and Dave played on that as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, well, before he was... The Chaz, Chaz and Dave. <laughs> Have I told you my Chaz and Dave story? Tell me your Chaz and Dave story. Oh, you'll love this. So about 1995, 1996, Chaz and Dave came to our theatre to do a show. So I was talking to their, their crew, a very, very Spartan crew, you know, sound engineer and uh, company manager and all that kind of stuff. There was only about three or four of them. And uh, they were doing the sound check, and they would, the, the poor guy had to drum, and then they had this guy just stood, stood there, just hitting Dave's bass. <laughs> and being a bass player, I went, um, "I'm a bass player. If you want, if you want me to stand in, thinking they're just going to say no, it's all right, mate. Yeah, go ahead." So I was like, "What? <laughs> Fantastic!" <laughs> so I think it was a this old Fender Precision that he had. So put that away to turn, and uh, so we just did a bit of twelve bar blues. If I get to tell a theatre story, I'm happy. And then finally, of course, the curtain is pulled back, and it's not The Wizard of Oz. It's a <laughs> massive 60s computer. <laughs> Called Frank Morgan. <laughs> the which, Frank Morgan 400. Which I, I, I did read was, um, was basically cobbled together from any bit of machinery they could find. There's, yeah, but in the episode, I mean, the, uh, the professor's study is the same... Uh, shelving units from Chimes of Big Ben from the London office. So, oh, brilliant. I so love th- there's a lot of recycling. eagle-eyed devil you. But, but it's, the set piece is amazing. It looks fantastic, but so impractical. <laughs> Unless you, you know, it's obviously got fantastic wheelchair access. Well, yes. But why would you build it up on? <laughs> Jack Shampoo's like, how can we, you know, how can we make this computer? Giving it the height, though, gives it more dominance. I suppose it's an old director's trick. But, yeah, giving it the low angle, looking up at the the general, gives it a certain authority and dominance. By this point, it was something of a trope, wasn't it? The huge computer being behind yes. it all. Uh, Twilight Zone episode. Oh, the, the cave, the man in the cave. Yes, the old man in the cave. The old man in the cave, and it turns out to be a, a, a com- massive computer. computer know. that's behind it all. I, th- I think, yeah, Twilight Zone, um, Star Trek. I mean, Kirk used to talk computers to death, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I think was it episode was it the Changeling? I think it was. He he basically has to reason with a computer, and he basically does what Magoon does, mm. and basically gives it an insoluble question. That's how you apparently that in the sixties. That's how you defeat computers. Did you? I mean, I remember at the time when I was seventeen watching mm. that, thinking, "Oh, genius, mm. genius! Why, of course." But now I kind of think it wouldn't have blown up. No, I mean, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe at the time I was used to... Um, given an error. Yeah. <laughs> a blue screen of death. At the, at the time, the <laughs> first time I saw it watching it, uh, I was still taking 20 minutes to load a Commodore 64 game. Yeah. So maybe that... Maybe back then I thought, oh, yeah. A little paperclip pops up and says, you're trying to ask an insoluble question. Would you like help with that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, scores on the doors, my dear boy. I, I'm gonna. I, I don't know. I'm gonna have to say maybe a four on this one. And the reason the reason for that is because it's a good idea. I like the message. I like the theme. But I think there are some elements of the of the visualization, the delivery of it, which need a lot of work and haven't aged well. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I, I'm, I'm going to go one, just one lower. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give this a three. Okay. It's not a bad score, oh. but it's, it's I, there are just elements of it I found frustratingly sort of uh, undercooked. Mm. And I still think it got a bit silly rather than sort of visually iconic. This is another episode that could have been expanded. But yeah, this would have been a, a better hour and a half. Yeah. Um, it needs it needs more time to breathe this episode I think in order to do it justice there's a lot of ideas that are condensed into this 50 minute structure yeah and I think it does need I th- yeah I think I mean when McGowan hired Peter Graham Scott mm. because he was quick and cheap <laughs> yes I th- you know I think you've got what's what you've got here it's a, it's a, it's a good but quick and cheap episode mm. Uh, but based, based, think... based on a very very good strong idea and mm. I don't know if that's Lewis Griefer's doing or whether it's McGowan's input into that or maybe the two have come together and they're just trying to put too much into it it doesn't quite land for me no it's 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 one of the it's one of the weaker episodes I Mm. think it's the weakest one so far you can find us on twitter at free for all pod or on facebook at podcast free for all and not to be one of those begging insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, it all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget. So thank you very much. <laughs> hey, Siri. What can I do for you? Why? Sorry, I'm still not sure about that. Fat a lot of good you are. <laughs> <laughs> Free for All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. you.